Um, hopefully everyone has gotten warmed up. My body is not acclimated to the cold yet. 70 to 11 degrees was pretty rough. Um, yeah. Um, this morning, I just wanted to kind of just encourage everyone as we enter a new year, uh, just with the new opportunities and everything that we're going to be having in the neighborhood, um, eventually getting back into Williams and some of the new things we'll be doing with staff and um, just in your personal lives as well, uh, just encourage to um, maybe one of your uh, New Year's resolutions would be getting more into scripture or attending a life group. If you need to, uh, more information on life groups, you can talk to me or any of our other leaders or anybody like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is our first Sunday of the new year. It's our first snow, kind of. Um, yeah, so... Um, just, um, we, we just have so much that is going to be coming in our future. Uh, once again, get, like I said, getting back in the neighborhood and all kinds of things. So if, if there's any, um, opportunities that you would like to serve, um, I encourage you to do that too, but just talk to any of our, our leaders. We're going to be planning, um, in the next week or two, we're going to have a big leadership planning meeting and. Um, I ask you guys if you could just join us in prayer for that, too, because there's a lot that we're going to be uh, looking at and working on for the rest of 2022. So, um, yeah, if you guys could just pray with me. Father, um, as I've been saying up here, God, you've, you've given us so many different, um, different opportunities throughout our years as a church body. But, God, I just pray that 2022... God, that you're just going to have some amazing, exciting things for us to to experience. And God, that we'll just get to spread your glory um, in the Tom Watkins neighborhood and on the north side of Springfield. God, I just pray that um, as we walk through all these things together, that you will just walk alongside of us and that you will just uh, fill our church, God, with love and with, with kindness and joy, and that we just want to share your word and uh, spread your gospel throughout the land, God, as you call us to do. Um, just be with us this morning as we are uh, walking through a new um, a new sermon series. And God, I just pray that you will give our elders the um, the words that you want them to speak and to share with us. Amen. Amen. All right. Jeff, just hang out with me here for a second. Good morning. There we go. I was like, this is going to be bad. Hey, if you don't know me, my name's JT. I'm one of the pastors here at Freshwater. So thankful that you're here today. We didn't know if anybody was going to show up. We actually were getting texts. Are we canceling church today? That just shows you it's the first snow of the year, doesn't it? It's like lightly, lightly dusting the road and people are like, are we doing church today? But we are doing church today. If I can get here, we're going to be doing church. And so um, this is going to take a little longer than I thought. I'm about to make everybody really uncomfortable. Are you ready for this? One of the things I'm most excited about about moving back to Williams, not the most, but one of the things I'm most excited about is being closer together again. Like Freeway was a huge blessing to us. It's been a huge blessing. During COVID, it was a blessing because we've been able to spread out and do our thing. But I'll, just take a look around the room right now. Really, I mean, I mean, seriously, take a look at the way we're seated. Does this seem conducive to a family worship environment? especially on a snowy day where people use their excuse to stay home because it's 11 degrees outside. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Move forward. 
particularly if you're in the back, if you're behind Ray or even Ray, move forward. I'm going to do this. Jeff, come here with me. I'm going to preach from the floor today. Because you remember at Williams, if you were there, I preached from the floor. Oh, the lights aren't in my eyes here. Um, I'm going to preach from the floor because I want to be closer to you. Right? I love you guys. See, that, this, I'm not joking. This already feels different. Hey, Nikki. Hey, Sarah. You guys are always in the front, right? But Matt, you were too far away. Rachel, you're just, just too far away from me. Like, you always sit in the back. I know. But you're good now. Good. Good. Um, I, I, see, this is way better. I'm going to actually preach to people and not to like gaps in the room. And this, this feels, doesn't this feel good? If you're worried about COVID, you can spread out still a little bit, right? I, I'm, no judgment here, but I just want to feel like a family. Um, so thank you for doing that. And for those of you that always sit in the front, um, you're not better Christians, but um, <laughs> you're short and you need to be in the front. Hey, I'm tall and I block view. Um, no, for you guys that sit in the front, it actually matters. Like to be able to preach and be able to actually see people's eyes. This is a huge room, right? And you, when you're sitting in the back, Esther, I can't, I can't see your beautiful face, Esther, when you're back there. So thank you for being well. Didn't this feel better? This feels totally different. And this is what I was going to go for today. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. No, first, yeah, 1 Corinthians 10. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to start a new series. I'll introduce it in a second. Jeff's going to read it for us. And normally I just let whoever's reading just start reading. But I, what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to really try to pay attention. We're going to read the whole chapter. I'm not going to really cover the whole chapter today. I'm going to cover a lot of it. I'm going to try to cover it as much as I can. But I didn't want to preach for three hours. And so we're going to kind of focus today. But I want you to listen to the whole chapter. We need the context of the whole chapter. And then what I want you to do is what I don't cover today. I want you to go this week and spend time in this chapter because it's fantastic. I want you to have the whole context and spend time in this studying it for yourself. Is that fair? Think you can do that? And, and cover the stuff that I didn't have a chance to cover today. But this is a, really this whole chapter is one thought from the Apostle Paul. And I want you guys to hear the whole thing. So, Jeff, you ready? 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to try not to read so monotone as I do when I stand up there and talk. <laughs> First Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all are the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now those things took place as, as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. 
Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for themselves what I say. The cup of blessing that will bless, is it not a tempt- uh, Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of the neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For excuse me, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, are you supposed to go and you goodness sakes and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Amen. Thanks, man. Pray with me. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we are so tremendously grateful for you. We're so grateful for your word that informs us, that teaches us about who you are, that your Holy Spirit that you use to convict and stir and teach us. God, there's so much in this chapter, but there's so much depth to the things that you're saying. So God, um, not only help me communicate it humbly and boldly today, but God, help us to hear I know I needed to hear so much that was in this chapter this week. I pray that we can all hear, Holy Spirit, that you convict and stir and grow and move us closer to who we're supposed to be at reflections of you, Jesus Christ. Thank you for, um, for being with us wherever we go as your temple of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, we're going to dive into that in just a second, but um, I don't know. Are you excited for this year? Are you? Good. I didn't know how you would respond. I was actually remembering our, our series at the beginning to start last year. And it just, I don't, even though it was like, again, it was COVID and culture wars and all this stuff over the last year, it, felt like, it feels like the beginning of last year was, was just a couple months ago. I can't believe it's 2022. 
That sounds weird, 2022. Um, anyway, um, but I'm excited for this year. We're, we really are, I can feel it. We're coming out of the COVID fog. We're, we're moving back to Williams like we've talked about. We're getting our focus back on, on pouring out into our community, of engaging our community. Um, plus, I don't know if you realize this, but we've got so many of the right people and so many leadership positions now, like Sarah taking over social media and helping out with Williams Elementary, right? That's just an example. Our leadership has been doing great. It's not like we removed leadership, right? But we just, we've had some gaps where we needed people to step up and lead, and they have been doing that. And we need more of that, right? But I feel like we've got a lot of really great leaders in the right places, and we're going in the right direction. And I'm, I'm excited um, for all of that. But here's the thing. Um, I have been praying constantly for the lost. God's just put it on my heart over the last year, six months in particular. I mean, I've always prayed for the lost, right? I hope you pray for the lost and your family and friends and your circles and beyond that. But, like, but it's been convicting me and stirring me. God's been stirring. I, I think I've told you this before. This is not JT is great. This is I should have been doing this a long time ago. I think I've told you. I now have a list probably of a dozen or more names of family members that I know in our church family that are lost that I'm praying for all of the time. I've been praying consistently for the lost in your circles because that's where it's got to start, right? If we're going to reach the lost, it doesn't start in Tom Watkins. It starts in your family and your friends and your workplaces and your circles, right? So I've been praying for that. I've been praying for, man, the lost in Tom Watkins. Tom Watkins is 2,200 homes. How many lost people are in 2,200 homes out there? So many. And, and we're not really reaching them right now, are we? Right? And then, then the lost in Williams Elementary, through the connections we're going to make this year by being there again and centering everything around there, I've just been praying for the lost, just begging God to use us, man, to use us for the harvest, just to see people saved, to see people baptized, and to see people welcomed into our community. Because let's be honest, when it comes to the lost and reaching community, that hasn't happened in any church as much in the last year and a half. There's these few exceptions out there that you hear about, but well, man, I'm in a lot of, I talk to a lot of pastors now, and it's just been a really hard year, even for the harvest. But that's got to change. It's got to change. And so God's really stirred my heart, man, that we've got to reach the lost. And I think that's where this series came from. I think that's where this series came from. This, this week, we're starting a four-week series just, just in January to kick off 2022, and we're calling it um, Community Advancement. And, and what this series is about is not only getting back to some, serving our community out there, which we want to do, but advancing the gospel, advancing community in these walls, right here. It's one of those things, like, let's come back, like, when I had you move forward. Like, let's be together. Let's, let's advance the community. Let's, let's remember what community is supposed to be in our church. Because if we're, going to, if we're going to advance the community of God and be involved in our community out there, we absolutely have to get community right here, right first, or we're not going to be what we could be and what we need to be. We won't be as effective. We won't be as unified in the mission that God has called us to. And so that's what this series is about. We're really going to start with you, like my heart and your heart. That's where we're starting this week. And then we're going to talk about us. And then we're going to talk about how we and us grow as a community and how then that spills out into our community at large. And so, I mean, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know our mission statement, right? The why church Freshwater exists to glorify God and advance the gospel, right? Like that's what we want this church to be. Everything we do for the glory of God. I don't know if you saw it, but it's in 1 Corinthians 10 31, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's why we exist as a church, to, for God's glory, for to, to proclaim Jesus Christ to each other within the church, but then to advance the gospel, right? That we all grow, then that spills out of our walls and we advance the gospel to our city, to our families, to our friends, and to the world. That's why, that's why we're here. What you might not have heard me talk about as much, I don't, I don't bring it up as much from the front, is our core values. 
I'm guessing if I said, what are our core values, nobody could name them right now. If I said them, you'll rem- some of you will remember them. But here's what they are. The first one, with three, community. Is that a surprise? We, we, we said from the beginning, authentic community. We don't want to be a fake church community that just attends and treats church like a country club, right? Where we kind of come and get our thing and then pay our dues and then leave. But be an actual community, authentic for each other, a family. And that's, that's hard to fight for in today's culture, right? But that's what we want to be. So our first core value is community. The second one's equipping. We want our people to be equipped. Read Ephesians 4, right? We, my job, Brandon's job, leader's job, our job is to equip each other for the work of the ministry, right? To, go, to be able to do the work. And then if we have community and we're being equipped, our last one is sending. We want to send people, we want to send people out of these walls, into their lives, into Tom Watkins' neighborhood, into our city, and throughout the world to, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to advance the gospel. But think about it for a second. Like really all the ministries that we do, if they don't kind of fall within our mission statement, our core values, then we try not to do them. Right? We try not to do them. We want to waste time doing things that aren't going to advance that. And so, but if you think about it, if we get community right, if we get our church community right, then people are going to be equipped, aren't they? If we're, if we're together and we're pouring our lives out for each other and we're teaching each other, people are going to be equipped and they're going to grow. And if people are equipped, they're going to be sent. If, if you're really truly experiencing the community of God and what, he meant for, what he's meant for us, then you will be equipped, your heart will be stirred for Christ, and then you'll almost have to go outside these walls and tell people about Jesus, won't you? Because, I mean, have you ever experienced that? I know some of, we're, we're all over the room right now and in, in where we are in our spiritual health and our spiritual growth. But most of you know those times where you are on fire for the Lord, it's almost impossible to keep your mouth shut about him, isn't it? Like we all get, we all have those things in our lives that we get really excited about. We just can't stop telling people about them. For me, it's my smoker. Right, Matt? Oh, man, my smoker. Anyway, I'm not going to get derailed. That's not my notes. I don't want to talk about my smoker, but we get excited about things. We talk about them. And when you've been on fire for the Lord, you talk about them, right? That's what happens. And if we have a healthy community that we're all using our gifts to equip each other, and then we're just going to be sent out. We're just going to want to go do the work that Jesus has called us to do. So this series is making sure, what it's about four weeks, is about making sure we get community right here so that we can be effective for our community out there. Make sense? That's it. It's, it's really that simple. And so as, as we talked about this, as Brandon and I talked about this, as I talked about this with other people, um, we couldn't get away from the, from the book of 1 Corinthians. Because 1 Corinthians just gives this beautiful br- blueprint for what this looks like. Even better than that, I think, is that um, the same things that the church in Corinth, the book of Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth, the things that, that Corinth were dealing with, and the things that the, the people and the church was working through are some of the th- same things that we're working, with, working through and dealing with today. Now, if you've ever read the book, let me just be clear about something. I think this church was way more unhealthy than we are, right? This church was a mess, and it was full of messy people. But I think you've heard me say this maybe in the last six months or so. If you're looking for a church that isn't messy, good luck to you. Because this is one of the very first churches, right? This is the, one of the earliest of churches that has been healthy. But man, they're having some issues. You know why? Because it's filled with messy people. Do you think that's an accident that the church is filled with messy people? All, and, and if you've been involved in churches or in this church for any amount of time, you all know if you're really doing community, right? If you're actually doing life together, if you're actually in people's lives, you know that this can be a really messy thing. So we can relate to it, can't we? Can't we? It's okay. We can relate to the mess. But, but the great thing about that mess is it's not an accident. 
God meant for messy people to get together and help each other grow. How in the world are we going to consistently learn about patience and kindness and grace and mercy? Remember, grace has nothing to do with what people deserve, but grace. How are we going to learn about grace and peace and all of these things if nothing ever happens so that we have to show grace and we have to forgive and then we have to let go of our bitterness and we have to reconcile, right? This is no accident that God threw a bunch of messy people um, together and said, work together to be more like me because that's what Christ did for us, right? We are a mess and he forgives us and he shows us grace and he helps us to grow. That's what we're supposed to be doing for each other. The mess is not an accident. The mess is a part of this community that Christ uses to refine us like gold so that we might be what we could be. So we might be what we could be. We get together not despite the mess, but because of it. So over the next four weeks, we're going to cover most of chapters 10 through, 10 through 13. I, I'm just confident we're going to do a whole series on 1 Corinthians someday, and we'll probably spend six weeks in 1 Corinthians 10, right? But I'm going to try to cover most of it in one week. But we're going to do basically not the whole chapter, but most of chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13 over the next four weeks to try to just get this picture of how God is telling us to advance community right here and then eventually out there. Now, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 10, let me give you a little context of the book. I've done a little bit, but let me give you a little bit more. This book was written to the church, as I said, in Corinth, in in kind of a Greece area in the Roman Empire. It was written by the Apostle Paul, who wrote about half the books in the New Testament, and he'd planted this church a few years before. Now he's in Ephesus, another church he planted, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, right? He's in Ephesus, and he's heard about some of the things that are going on in Corinth, and so he's writing back to them and trying to address some things. And and here's what has has mainly started going badly, not going well. They had members who had seemingly become arrogant. They had become judgmental. And their arrogance and their judgmental and their selfishness was dividing the church. So one of the main reasons Paul was writing this is to, 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 to give them a call to, like, listen, stop trying to one-up each other. Stop fighting over things that aren't primary and be united in the gospel. Does that sound familiar? It's like half the books in the New, half of the epistle letters in the New Testament are centered around that in some way, right? Messy church, right? Messy church. The other thing that had happened is the people had gotten very apathetic about their sin, not even, not even talking about trying to strive for holiness. They've got apathetic about their sin. Two sins in particular, sexual sin and pride. Sexual sin and pride had started taking over the church. And so the call to actual holiness was just not being taken very seriously. What, what, if you read 1 Corinthians, what it really seems is that the people had been, become much more concerned with their own needs, their own way of doing things, their own thoughts, and their own desires much more than desiring to help each other grow in Christ, which is what this church is supposed to be, right? I sacrifice myself to help others grow as they sacrifice themselves to help me grow. They kind of lost that. Now, you add on top of that, that Corinth was a city known, like known throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the area, as being extremely wealthy, as being highly sexual, and it was also known for its artistry. Its artistry. Now, and a lot of those things all wove together. Their artistry really displayed a lot of wealth and a lot of sex and a lot of excess, right? So now, saying that, does our culture sound all that much different than Corinth's culture? It's an ancient time. Things were different, but does it sound that much different? Do you know we're, we're considered one of the wealthiest, controversially, but right, we're considered one of the wealthiest cultures, countries that's ever existed. That's ever existed. 
And yet on top of that, now through movies, through TV, through our music, through our art, we have transported our culture throughout the world and people embrace it everywhere. Have you ever traveled around the world? I'm not saying our culture is dominant everywhere, but our culture has influenced places where you go. When we're in the middle of India and they're wearing Nike shirts and drinking Coca-Cola and watching, listen, watching movies that we watch and going to theaters to watch the movies that we watch, we're exporting our culture everywhere. And as a culture, we have been a culture that has absolutely pioneered the sexual revolution. Right? That's, that really started here. We have pioneered the legalization of abortion that, that, that was bred out of wanting to have free sex. We have, listen, we have normalized pornography throughout the world. We're working on it. It's, it's pretty much happened here. I don't know if you know that, but outside of church culture, the Bible Belt, like pornography is, is being normalized and that's spreading throughout the rest of the world. We, we, we've, ha- we've helped our culture, Western culture at least, but it's spreading. Get to the point where watching people have graphic sex on TV is okay as long as the show is good. Right? Is that not true? As long as the show is good. Now, I know I'm a pastor and I know I'm supposed to say things like this, right? But on any of those things I just said, does anyone feel like I'm exaggerating? Like I'm pushing it too far? I'm saying things that aren't true? We now live in a culture that not only is propping up sex as one of the, the most important things, but it's like it's trying to identify us primarily by our sexual identity. That's, that's, that's becoming the primary way that people are identified, that people find their identity. No, we're, the ch- church, we're not that much different than Corinth at all. We have similar division in our churches. We live in a similar morally bankrupt culture that is getting more morally bankrupt and, and, and a culture that's trying to pull us in. That's what was happening in Corinth. The culture was pulling the people in instead of being pulled towards Christ, and it was creating all kinds of problems in the church. And not only that, I think we have a very similar lack of, or desire for holiness that Corinth was struggling with. I think we have so many Christians out there that, that avoiding sin might be a thing, but actually pursuing holiness is just something that doesn't factor in all that often. We're not called to not sin. We're called to holiness. Now, all that seems pretty heavy, right? It's pretty weighty for the first sermon of the year. I get it. But, but the wonderful thing is that in the end, although that's what Paul is addressing, it's not the point of the letter. The, the point of the letter is not to call us out, which it does lovingly call us out. It called them out and therefore calls us out. It does that lovingly. But the point is to remind us of the wonderful things God has actually called us to, to remind us of the amazing things that God has done for us and that he's created in us and so that God could show us the way forward, a way that is so, so much better, so much more fulfilling, so much more about who we actually are instead of following lies. That's what Paul wants them to see. That's what who God, God using Paul, that's what God wants us to see that his ways are so much better. And listen, the primary way of doing it God's way and not the world's way, the primary way that God has used other than the Holy Spirit, obviously, is his holy community. That's where these things happen together. We, we grow in these things together. People called by his grace to do his good work. So that's really where we're going in this book. That's really what the context of Corinth is and how, man, even if it's written, you know, 2,000 years ago, it's still absolutely relevant to us today, maybe more than ever. So with that context, let's, tra- let's jump back into 1 Corinthians 10. And like I said, we're not going to be able to cover the whole thing. We're going to cover as much as we can. 
but I want you to spend time in what I don't cover today, later this week. So let's start with this. Let's read the first 12 verses again. And it might, you might not know what's going on in the first few verses, but pay attention. We're going to talk about it. Um, it'll make sense in a second if it doesn't. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual, capital R, rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Did you hear that? It said, it is an example to us, to them and to us. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, listen to this. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages means that Christ has come. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Okay, let's stop there for now. Let's stop there for now. Okay, so for those of you who might have caught it, um, what point in history were the first eight verses of so referencing? Wilderness. What, what book is the wilderness? Exodus, right? It was referencing Exodus. And that's just a coincidence, by the way. If you haven't been with us, we just got done going through the book of Exodus. And I didn't plan this out. I didn't pick 1 Corinthians 10 because it lined up perfectly with Exodus. That's just how God works. That's how God does things, right? So if you were with us during our Exodus series, this might be a little clearer. But let me just point it out quickly. We're going to move this quickly because we just covered it in the book of Exodus. But, but the cloud, what was the cloud it's talking about there? Did you say the pillar of smoke? Yeah, Nikki said the pillar of smoke for sure. The pillar of smoke, right? There was a cloud that they followed, right? They followed a cloud during the day that when, as God led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and freed a bunch of slaves, a bunch of Jewish slaves, he freed them and they followed God. They followed this pillar of smoke. And then it says they passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses. What, and what, what water, what sea did they pass through? The Red Sea, right? Moses parted the Red Sea. They passed through the Red Sea. And even now, like... I, even now, it points, even the Red Sea in Scripture points forward to when we'll be baptized, when we'll be renewed, when we'll be saved and redeemed. As they passed through the waters, they came through and they were truly set free because the army was destroyed after it passed through, right? And at that point is when the people really fully, finally kind of committed to Moses as their prophet, as their leader, as the one that spoke on behalf of God. So they're baptized into Moses, into God's plan, right? And then it talks about spiritual food. What was that? Man, the manna from heaven. They didn't have enough food, so God, in, in Exodus, in the wilderness, God provided the manna. And then finally it says, um, the water. What was the water? Where did the water come from? The rock. Who struck the rock? Moses, right? They didn't have water, and they grumbled, and they complained. And so God, even through their grumbling, complained, Moses struck the rock. But here's the thing that Paul's saying. All of that provision, all of them being taken care of, who was the one that was actually taking care of them and providing for them the whole time? The rock. 
right? Even then, God is not a divided God. Jesus is not a new creation. Even then, Jesus was watching over them. God was using Jesus to provide for them, to save them. Even all the way back then, salvation came through Jesus Christ. They just didn't know it. I don't know if you know that. Like, in the Old Testament, they weren't saved in a different way that we're saved. They, they knew they were pointing forward to the day that they would be redeemed by the Messiah and the Messiah came. So even then, they were provided for, they were saved, they were rescued, they were redeemed, and they were brought to the promised land by who? The rock, Jesus Christ. That's who the Father worked through, the rock, Jesus Christ. That even then, Jesus was with them. And if you were with us through Exodus, we know that even Exodus... Exodus was simply a story pointing forward to the day when our rock of salvation would free us from our true slavery, sin, from the thing we really needed an exodus from, sin and this world, and redeem us so that we might be led by Jesus to the true promised land. What's the true promised land? Heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. Exodus was just a blueprint for what God was really going to do through Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul that it was always about Jesus. It was always about the rock. That's always where redemption came from. Amen. Scripture is one story, the story of God's redemption of his people through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, here's where Paul kind of gets to the point, though. That even though these people had been given so many blessings from God, the people in Exodus, right? As they were freed from slavery. Even though God had showed them just a ridiculous amount of grace and mercy and miracles and everything else, they failed. They failed in the wilderness to be faithful to God, and they missed out on so many of the blessings that God was promising them, including having to spend 40 years in the wilderness and wait to go into the promised land because of their sin. So the question is, if God showed them this much grace, this much mercy, this much faithfulness, why did this happen? We asked Genesis, how could this happen? Why, why would they do this? Let me ask a better question. Why would you do it? Because you'd have done the same thing. Why are we like this? I think we saw it in one word in verse 7. Idolatry. They were idolaters. Now, we don't have time. I'm not going to take the time to, get, to go through all of the consequences that it talks about in verse 8 with the serpent that got raised and the, the ground opening up and swallowing people up because of their sin, right? We covered that in Exodus. I want you to go back and read it and, and connect it to Exodus in your brain so it's a, a fuller story. But we do want the point of what Paul is trying to say here. The point is that God gave them everything that they needed and more, but they ran, so many of them, not all of them, but so many of them ran to their idols instead of running to God and it brought so much pain, so much suffering on themselves. But we ask again, we read the story of Exodus, why? Why would they run to their idols when God had done so much for them, had been so faithful to them? Well, Brandon quoted a theologian last week. I thought it was a great quote. I stole it for this. Basically, this, this sermon is called something that's in this quote. I'm going to read the quote first. It's just great. It says this, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That's the name of this sermon, by the way, idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Our heart is constantly producing idols for us to follow other than God. Things that we make ultimate in our hearts that we pursue, not in God's way, but in whatever this idol is promising us in, in that way instead of pursuing God. And now, in the Exodus, in the Old Testament, they, they, they actually worshipped actual idols. But listen, the idol is not, was not the important thing. It's what the idol represented. It's the God or the feeling or whatever they wanted is what it represented. And like, for example, they, they would worship gods of sex and fertility, 
right? Because, you know why? Because they wanted to have sex the way they wanted to have it. They wanted to have kids the way they wanted to have it. They wanted to focus on what they wanted. And so when Moses came down off the mountain, it's actually addressing this in the passage. He says they, they were playing. Listen, they were partying and drinking and having sex. Why? Because that's what they wanted to do. And they knew that God had called them to something different, but that's what they wanted. So this is what they turned to. They worshiped sex because they wanted sex their way, not God's way. And then here's the truth. I'm confident within, just within our church, we have people right now doing the same things. It may not look like having a big party at the bottom of a mountain, but we have people right now in our church, at least fairly consistently, looking at pornography. We have people engaging in sexual relationships, whether they're actually having sex or just having a relationship that's flirty and inappropriate with someone who's not their spouse. We have people in our church, maybe, maybe in our church, but in the church as a whole, that are having sex outside of marriage. They're, they're committing adultery on their spouse, so they're not married yet, and they're, and they're having sex before God called them to. Because, because it's okay in our culture now, isn't it? We are Corinth, and it's just normal now. Again, in the Bible Belt right here, it's not quite as normal, but but look at young people throughout our city. It's normal. We could go on and on about how sexualized our culture is. And our idle factory hearts are not pursuing sex in the way that God intended because we want it our way, not God's way. You think it's different? And that's just one thing we give our hearts to. It's just one thing we idolize. We could talk about money or comfort or our careers or our kids or relationships or anger or envy or bitterness or fear or jealousy or knowledge. But there's so many things that we could talk about, the things that we hold on to and we give so much of our hearts and minds to rather than giving it to God first. Now, why does this happen? Why are we idolaters? Why are our hearts idol factories? I'm about to say something controversial. Are you ready? Because that's how God built us. It's how God made us. Does that sound wrong? That God built us in a way that creates a potential idol factory? Here's what I mean by that. I want you to hear it. You were literally created for worship. You're not, you're, you're not, the number one thing about you is not your sexual identity or anything else. The number one thing about you is you were created by God to worship. It's what defines you. It's who you are. It is the number one thing about you. God created you to worship him, to glorify him, to live your life for him. And listen, God's not some megalomaniac God that needs your worship. God doesn't need your worship to somehow feed him. God knows who he is. He's fully aware that God does not just love us. He is love. God does not just give joy. He is joy. God does not just design things to give us pleasure. He is pleasurable. Heaven will be pleasures forevermore. God calls us to glorify him and worship him because he knows how good he is. And there's no, there's no envy or pride in God. He just knows who he is. Nothing evil, wrong, or bad exists in him. So calling us to worship him is the absolute best thing, the most loving thing he could do. Because he is those things. And as we call, as we grow into him, as we glorify him, we experience more and more of those things because that's who God is. He built us to worship. And hear me, church. If your worship is not going right at God, it is going somewhere. Listen, not that it might go somewhere else. It will go somewhere else. It just will. Why? Because you're built to worship. It's what you're going to do every day day. And the point God is trying to get to in this passage is if your worship goes to the wrong things, it will go badly. There are consequences. 
And the consequences for the Jews were dire. Tens of thousands of people dying, they, they literally had to live out the consequences of their sin. Now, it's a little different for us, isn't it? Why is it a little different for us when it comes to punishment, when it comes to the consequences of our sin? Why? Because of Christ. Right? Because of Jesus Christ. For our punishment was paid on that cross by the broken body of Jesus Christ and by his shed blood on the cross. Our guilt is covered. They had to, they had to feel, they had to experience their own guilt and the consequences and the punishment of their own sin. But Jesus Christ has covered that for us so that we don't have to deal with the punishment for sin like they had to deal with the punishment for sin. But listen, is there still consequences for your sin though? Listen, does a, does a good father not still discipline the children that he loves? If you have a father or a mother who refuses to discipline their kids, they're either extremely selfish, they care more about their reputation or being liked, or they just don't love them. It's sinful not to discipline your kids. What a loving thing to do to see your kid walking towards danger. And if they keep walking and they don't listen to you, you intervene with discipline to protect them from falling into danger. They don't know. They don't know the danger. We know the danger. They don't know. So we're there to discipline them so they can see the danger and understand to step back. That's what God does for us. So absolutely, we don't have to pay the punishment for our sin the way they did in the wilderness. But absolutely, there is discipline and consequences for our actions. Would God even be good if he just ignored things that were destroying our soul and didn't step in at some point? Would he be a good God if he just ignored the fact that we were chasing idols and we couldn't see it as clearly as he sees it and he didn't try to intervene in some way, even if he had to kind of slap us a little to wake us up? Does that sound too bold to say that God slaps us? But I think sometimes God allows us to suffer, to suffer to refine us because he loves us. God will even use evil things in this world to grab a hold of us because of his love for us. Because of his love for us. And it's saying in this passage that God ensured that three, 4,000 years later, we could still look back at the story of Exodus and see it as an example, as a lesson to us that even when God, even when God is rescuing and pouring out his grace and pouring out his mercy and pouring out miracles and pouring out his love, that we're still at risk of turning to our idols. It's in the passage, it said, be careful lest you think you stand, you stand safely. It's when we think we're good is when we're at the biggest risk. Because even when God's pouring out his grace and mercy, sometimes our idols still come for us. And false worship tears away who we are meant to be in him. Who we're meant to be in him. So here it comes. Here's where we're at. We've got to make it personal because if you've been in life group with me or even listened to me preach, the last thing I want to do is read some scripture and proclaim some stuff from the front. And then you never get to the point where you actually think about like, how is God speaking to me in this? If we don't ever get to the point where we think like, is this me? Where is this me? How can I move forward? Then men were a country club wanting to be inspired, but never really growing. So I just want to ask Man, is God convicting you over anything in your life that you know that you make a little bit too ultimate in your life that you maybe make an idol? And so I want to ask, what is it for you? Scripture constantly brings things like this up, idol worship and that, that type of things, because God knows the risk we're at. If our worship strays, he, he knows the risk. He sees the risk. What I want you to do is I want us to try to like, 
I, I want us to try today and throughout the rest of this week, it's like dive down into our hearts and get past sin. Like I, we got to recognize our sin and what it is, but sin is a symptom. It's not the disease. There's a place in your heart. There's a place in all of our hearts where we don't fully trust Christ. Maybe it's with our peace or with our joy or with our hope or with control, whatever it is, or with just that, that God could actually love you despite the things that you've done, despite where you've been, that God could love you for who you are right now, exactly who you are right now, that God loves you as much as he could possibly love you right now, no matter what you've done. And so you make other things in your life an idol. You, go to, uh, you run to other things. You can't run to God because you can't believe that he would love you as much as he actually loves you. Whatever it is, we've got to get past just sin and down into the heart. and We've got to see the sin so that we can dive past it down into the disease that keeps us from truly trusting God with whatever it is. So what is it that you tend to give your heart, your mind? Listen, you're consuming thoughts to other than God. Is it a relationship? Maybe a marriage, maybe some of you are dating, maybe wanting a relationship and you don't have one. I, I got to say this one because we have so many young families. Is it your kids? Is it having the perfect, perfect family? Is it obsessing over, it's making your kids ultimate? And whether you want, want everything for your kids or you want to be the ultimate parent or you feel like you're not the ultimate parent, you feel like you're failing as a parent, you make your kids the centerpiece of your identity of who you are. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. And your kids are, what, what amazing gift it is. But even in the gift, we turn things into an idol factory just like they did in Exodus, right? Is it obsessing over the life you wish you had or how you wish your life was different? Or you wish your spouse was different? Or you wish your parents were different? Or you wish your family was different? Is it, listen, I think for a lot of us, is it just simply comfort? You just want your life to be as easy as possible. You don't want anything to get in the way of that. And so you just want to kind of coast along and do the same old thing because that's, that's easier. It's easier for you to kind of control your life that way. Is it money? Is it obsessing over the money you have, over the money you want, over the life that you wish you had that money could bring you or, the, or the, the you have the money that you do have and you want it to give you more of a life that, that you don't have? Is, is it using money to protect you in some way? Maybe it's self-righteousness. Maybe it's being judgmental. Basically, like your idol is thinking that you have it figured out better than everybody else and you can't believe people aren't like you. Jesus is harder on the self-righteous people than anything else, but so often in churches we become, our idol becomes, why aren't people like me? Why can't people figure this out? Here, I think this is a big one for some of us. Is it fear? Are you just afraid a lot? Does, does fear control a lot of the decisions you make, whether it's protecting your kids or your family, or your spouse, or you're afraid of disease or afraid of whatever else? Listen, like we need to be wise. But God has said, you're not given a spirit of fear. God doesn't want us to be afraid all the time. But I think there's some of us that, like as crazy as it sounds, we make idol, an idol out of fear because if we, if it almost feels like we have control of things that we don't have control about, fear ends up being about control. The same way that anger does, to control something that we can't control. Maybe it's your reputation. You care so much about what people think of you. You make decisions based off of what people are going to think of you, not what's best, not even what God would want, but if people are going to like you or think you're great. We could kind of flip that. Well, one more. Is it, are you pursuing certain things that God maybe even gave us as a gift 
outside of biblical bounds, whether that is sex or alcohol or, or anything else. You're, you're using something that God gave us as a gift, but it's become like way too important, way too big part of your life. And it's, it's not really honoring God in the way you pursue that thing anymore. But let's flip that quickly from like things that can be good that we use in the wrong way. Um, do you think maybe you're making an idol out of your anger, your bitterness, your resentment, your unforgiveness? Because some of you have had people do absolutely terrible things to you. And if we're going, we're going to do it the way the world says to do it, they deserve your bitterness. Like they're deserving of it. They're deserving of your resentment. But what has God called you to do to people who deserve your resentment, anger, and bitterness? To forgive. Do you think God just likes to tell you what to do? Like you just need to forgive. You just need to be better. Do you think that what God, that's what God's saying? He loves you. As you've heard me say before, I think, unforgiveness, anger, resentment is like taking a poison pill and hoping the other person dies. God wants to set you free from the slavery of anger, of, of resentment, of hate, because that's what he's done for you. He commands it because that's what he's done for you despite the things you've done. He wants you to seek reconciliation where you can and forgiveness so that you might have peace and realize the peace that he's given to you. Or maybe our last one, we'll go back to our very first one, sexual sin. Maybe it's something like porn. Or maybe you just let sexual sin or sexual things become normal, way too normal in your life. For an, for an example, for some of us, when nudity is displayed on screen, you're, you're okay with it. Listen, as long as it's a good show. If it's a bad show, you'll, you may jump out of it. But if it's a good show, man, if it's, man, this show's really good, though. I, I'll just try to skip past it or whatever, right? Now, if we're honest with ourselves... Can we, can we just be honest real quick? Maybe that's you, maybe it's not. But does anyone feel like that aligns, just the sexual sin part, does anyone feel like that aligns with holiness? If we're honest, is there anyone that can make an argument? Is there anyone that we could talk after service and can make an argument that being okay with nudity or sex on a screen or wherever else is, is okay? Because it, it, it doesn't say don't sin. It says pursue holiness. Yes, we're not supposed to sin, but we're to pursue holiness. Does anyone think that, that that aligns with pursuing holiness? Like, I'm, I'm not even trying to be dramatic at all. Does anyone, after service, come talk to me. If you think that watching people have sex on screen, which you can't fake that, by the way, they might not be having... Where's the kids? They might not be having actual intercourse, but they are naked bodies together on screen. Something that God meant for a man and a woman. Is that, am I wrong? Am I in any way over-exaggerating this? Right? We've become okay with it, haven't we? Maybe not all of you, maybe not some of us, but in some ways we've been okay with seeing these things because it's been normalized. It shouldn't be normal among Christians. And listen, I have to fight the same things too. I'm not, a, I'm not up here as a self-righteous pastor, perfect at all these things. This is something that my wife and I struggle with all the time because if a new show comes on, we want to watch it. Man, we just, we can't. Not if we're going to be honest about pursuing holiness. In verse 14, when Jeff read it, it says that, it's that God says this, listen, my beloved, I love that word. My beloved, you are beloved to God. My beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee. In 1 Corinthians 6, it specifically addresses sexual sin. It says, flee sexual immorality. Flee it. Don't just try to avoid sin, but flee. Run from it. Don't dance around it. Don't be all kind of okay with it. Don't just skip through it if you happen to see it on your screen. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry and pursue holiness. And pursue holiness. 
If we did that, would we be okay with some of the things that we see or we know that's out there? Would we still be having sex before marriage because, man, everybody else is doing it and our culture basically says it's okay? Would we be okay with living together before marriage because we're going to marry the person anyway, so might as well? And it's going to save us a lot of money and it's going to be a lot more difficult to, to, to be separated before marriage because of all of these, these financial things? Is that fleeing? No. I, listen, we all know the answer to these things. You think your heart is not a perpetual idol factory? Institute for sex here, institute whatever else. We, we have to fight this. We're at war with this all the time because we just simply want it our way. I hope you see it. Whatever it is for you, wherever you're tempted to follow the world's way instead of God's way, you're making that thing an idol in your heart. Think about it. You're saying to God, well, God, I understand, God, I understand, and I do love you. I love you, God, but you don't understand what's happened to me, God. I need my anger. I need my fear. I need this thing, God. It helps me get through the day. God I, God, I need this money. I need more money, or I need you to protect my money because, because God, it, it, whatever you're, you feel like your money gives me, you, you don't know what your money gives me. You don't know how I grew up. You don't know how poor I grew up or how I didn't have money. Or, God, I need this thing to protect my family, to take care of myself. I need these things. God, I need my fear. I need my fear because it protects me. It guards my family. It protects them from, from bad things happening to them. I need my fear. I need I need my, God, I, I know that you love my kids and I know that you love me, but God, you, I need my kids to be ultimate in my life because God, you don't know. Do you remember, God, how I grew up and how my parents treated me and how my parents weren't there for me? I, I need to be the best parent ever because I'm not gonna let what happened to, my, happened to me happen to my kids. So God, I, I love my kids and I know you love my kids, but, but for now, I gotta make them ultimate in my life. I've gotta protect them. I've gotta take care of them because that, that can't happen to them what happened to me. God, I know the things that are in this show are ungodly and that you wouldn't approve and there's nothing to do with holiness, but God, you just don't understand how badly I just need to check out at the end of the day. God, my life is hard and my, my anxiety is getting to me. So I just need, God, I just need to turn off my brain for a while and just watch this thing that I like so I don't have to think for a while. God, you don't, know, you don't understand how much I love this person and I'm gonna marry him anyway. So God, I know that you've called me to wait till, for marriage, for sex, but I'm marrying him anyway. So God, just let me do it my way because it's going to work out fine anyway. You're going to be pleased to me in any way. I know God, and I mostly want you, but, but your joys just aren't quite enough for me. Not quite. I need just a little bit of my idols to supplement what you are offering me, and then I'm going to be okay. What is it for you, church? Can you be honest? Don't think of your spouse. Don't think of your, even right now, don't think of your kid. Don't think of your sister or your parent who failed you. What is it for you? Because you can't change those people. You can't sanctify those people. Church, if we're going to be what we could be as a church family and a community right here, and if we're going to be what we could be, what we should be for the community out there, it all starts with facing the idol factory right here. It's where it starts. And I, I have been praying all week. I've been praying this morning that God would convict you over something today. Because if he didn't convict you over something, that worries me a little. For all of us have things in our life that tempt us 
that try to own us at times. If Jesus was tempted, you're going to be tempted. And so, and I say, I prayed for conviction in your hearts. And even in my heart, I have had to work through conviction this week, going through this myself, because not, and I'm asking that you have conviction, not because I want you to wallow in shame or guilt. No way. So often our faith becomes about shame and guilt. No way do I want that for you, but because I want you to feel it. I want you to feel the way that you give yourself to other things other than God and realize what your idols are and realize where you need to be convicted so that when what is comes next, what is said in verse 13 will really land with you and you'll see just how faithful and loving your God is to you despite all of this. Despite all of this. So take wherever you feel conviction. Take wherever you know you need to move and grow and change. Take where you know you need to glorify God with your life and read verse 13 with me. Take all of that into this verse and hear what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Church, this has been one of my life verses. This verse has been a part of what helped me walk away from my sin and my idolatry and the constant temptations into the loving arms of my Savior. Listen to me, church. Listen to what it said. No temptation. Listen, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common. Do you know what that means? That it says it's, it's common. Hear me. Your sin is not special. Your sin, hear me, this is important for you to hear. Your sin or wherever you struggle, it is not unique. You are not the only one. And I say that because I, don't want, I want you to feel less sexual. I say that because it helps, when we, it helps us if we bring our sins, we bring our temptations, we bring our idols out of the darkness and we confess them to others, we confess them to God in the light. And when we do that, they lose power over us. All that temptation, all that sin loses power over us. Our enemy uses the dark and he uses secrets and he uses our own constant negative self-talk to absolutely own us when he has no right. We are owned by Jesus Christ who has set us free, church. We are owned by one that wants to love us and set us free. We are not owned by the enemy. We're not owned by our own desires. That darkness, church, is a lie. It is lying to you that that's who you are and that's what you desire. Do you know what? If you are a child of God, you actually, in your deepest part of you now, you desire holy things. You desire good things. You are a child of God. You are a child of the Spirit. We give in to the flesh, but the flesh is not who we are. We are children of light and we believe lies. We believe the darkness. Don't you believe that you, what you are feeling or what you are doing is in any way special? It's not. Our own hearts, desires, and our enemy has been using the same tactics since Adam and Eve. You are not unique. Not in your sin. Not in your temptation. Don't you dare believe you are alone or that you can't talk about it or that you can't bring it into the light. Do not let shame and guilt and pride hold you in chains because that's what they are, they're chains. And here's the beautiful thing, God knows this. He knows all of this and he says to you, beloved, look at me, beloved, I am faithful to you. I know what you've done, I know what you've thought, I know what you've been through, I am faithful to you. I will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Come to me. Trust in me, believe in me, and I will give you what you need to resist. He's calling to you. 
Not to shame you, but say, come, I'm freedom. I've got what you need. Listen, church, I want you to hear, this is not good advice. This is a promise. It is a promise from your God that he will never break his word to you, that he will be there for you because he doesn't fail and he doesn't lie. When I was struggling with habitual sin, I held on to this verse like I was drowning and it was oxygen. I knew that I had failed. I knew that I was a failure. And listen, I knew for a time that I was going to fail again. It felt inevitable because it just felt like this is who I am. I'm going to fail again at this thing. Yet God was there making a promise to me. So I had to ask myself, and I think you've heard me say this before, but I literally would ask myself on a daily basis, is God a liar or not? I have lied. I am a liar. But is God a liar or not? So I would literally start my day with this verse. I said it's a life verse for me. I would start my day with this verse. I would look at this promise. I would hold on to this promise. I would pray over this promise. And so and I'd ask God, God, help me to believe that this is true. Help me to believe that I'm not this thing, that I'm not this sin, that I'm not this temptation, that I am a child of God, that I can walk away. I would pray, Holy Spirit, remind me when the moment of my temptation comes and I, I give in, I normally would give in to it. Remind me then of who I am, of who you are, that I am a child of God, that I'm not this idol, that I'm not this thing, that I am not my shame, that I am not my guilt, that I can be free. And what did he do? He set me free. More and more, God started changing my heart, started freeing me from my own selfish flesh, started freeing me from the unbelievable shame that I felt, the unbelievable chains that I just felt like couldn't be broken. And he started helping me not only get free from my sin, but here's the point. He helped me start actually walking in holiness and desiring it, desiring holiness. And how did God actually accomplish this? Yes, he promised me this, but how did he accomplish this? Well, that's what verse 15 through 17 is telling us. He accomplished it through Christ. Because we are one with Christ, because Jesus literally died for you, but he died for me. Paul uses language like this. He died for all of us, but he died for me. His broken body took the punishment that I knew I so desperately knew that I deserved. His blood washed away the guilt that I felt so heavy all of the time, so much shame. Jesus Christ went to the cross to shed his blood to be our shame so he could lay our shame down. And better than that, he was resurrected to show that that old self dies. The slavery dies. The chains die. And we were reborn as something new with Christ as a new creation. That's why these words in 1 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, other places that we are a new creation, we have to hold on to them like they were like, that, like they're oxygen because we will believe the lies that we're still the old person. We're not. And I had to hold on to it like oxygen, like I was drowning until it started actually feeling really, really good to breathe clean, free air. We are transformed into children of God. This is how we turn from being idol factories into the holy temples of God's spirit and light. Church, there's so much more good stuff in this chapter. We don't have time for it today, so let me just close with this verse. If you want to look at it, you can. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. I referenced it earlier. I'm going to read it to you. At the end of chapter 30, the, ch the chapter 10 and verse 31, it says this. 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The true answer to shutting down the idol factory is not avoiding sin. Yes, you need to avoid sin. Yes, you need to be self-controlled and self-disciplined, yes. But it's not the answer. It is by so completely giving your worship to God in every aspect of your life that there is no more room for your idols to thrive any longer. They get starved out. Through worship of God, the idols in your heart, they get starved out. They can't thrive. Thriving in Jesus Christ is your answer, church. Thriving through worship will lead you away from sin and winning the battle against temptation through the power of the Holy Spirit that's already within you. It's by looking at all these things in in our lives and obvious sin and and really good things that we end up making ultimate things and asking ourselves, how can I take this failure or how can I take this thing that I've I've made ultimate in my life and, and even give that, even give my failure, even give my idols to God so that I might glorify him and him setting me free in this. That's how you get free. That's how we move forward. God knew, listen, God knew how hard this was going to be. So he not only gave you his own son to redeem you and his own spirit to sanctify you and to give you power, but he gave you promises like in this passage. This is why as a pastor, I'm calling you all the time to read your word, to be in your word, not because it makes you a good Christian, but so that when you need it, you can hold on to the promises like they are oxygen and you are drowning until it no longer feels like you're drowning, that you take joy in the promises, that you celebrate the promises, that you worship God because of the promises. That's what the word of God is supposed to be, finding God and who he is and who you are and his promises right here so that you can live in joy and freedom in who God is and who he's made you to be. That's how we get free, church. That's how we move forward. And the first step to becoming the community we need to be in here and to be the community that we need to be out there is facing our own personal idols and giving them to Jesus Christ. So that our focus is not on ourselves, but on how we can build up others for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his name and build his church. But it all starts here. So Christian, so church, when your temptation comes, and hear me, it will come. Temptation will come, and when it does, if you hold on to these promises that God has given you, if you remember what Christ has already done for you, you will be able to endure it. God is promising it. You will be able to turn your eyes to Jesus and actually find what those idols were promising you, the thing that they could never actually give you, God has for you. True, true, lasting joy and hope and peace and then the promises in heaven for pleasures forevermore. Church, the first answer to your growth and to community advancement is worship. It's worship. So turn your eyes and your hearts away from your idols and turn them to, and turn them to Christ. Brandon and TJ are going to come up here and lead us through communion. But before we do, I just want to take some time for you to actually talk with God right now. Right now about these things. Ask him to start the process of of changing your hearts and moving you towards thriving in your worship in him right now. And so just take time right where you are. And they're going to come up here and lead us through communion in a second. But it will prepare our hearts for communion to thank Christ for what he has actually accomplished.
If you need to come up here and pray at the stairs, come up here and pray at the stairs. If you want to kneel before God and just submit, submit this thing to him or whatever, come kneel up here. I'm going to be over there. If you want to come pray with me, come pray with me. If you just need to pray about something else, come pray about something else. But I want us, again, not to just hear teaching and think, yeah, I need to do that and then forget it about it by lunch on Monday. I want you to take time with the Lord right now and lay these things at his feet and ask him to help you to move forward and help you to believe his promises. So go ahead and take that time now.